Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. So last week, we spent the whole session on uh, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, verse 25 called the Hosanna verse, uh, Hoshiana, Hoshiana, Lord, please save us now, please, oh, we beseech you, we beg you. And then we talked about how when Jesus made his triumphal entry, how the people then uh, re- recreated this uh, ceremony as part of the uh, Feast of Tabernacles where they cut the palm branches and they waved them and they shouted this uh, Hosanna verse from 118, which is, is rec- was recognized by them as the Messianic Psalm talking about the Messiah. So what they were saying is, we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 118 that we've heard sung all as part of the the Feast of Tabernacles, our lives. And here he is. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 118. However, we also said it was more of a head belief than a heart belief because, you know, they still rejected Jesus ultimately a few days later. And how Jesus then, when he weeped over Jerusalem, uh, he said, part of verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You will not say this of me until you see me again. And what he was saying was basically, it wasn't, Psalm 118 wasn't fulfilled during my triumphal entry, but it will be fulfilled in my second coming. And in my second coming, those who see me come will actually believe in me with their hearts that he who comes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So look at this in 298. Let's do this as a responsive reading. I'll be the worship leader. You be everyone. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully. And that's another thing, joyfully. The Feast of Tabernacles is all about joy. It's the most joyous uh, uh, of all the feasts. Uh, disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Amen, amen, amen. So that fits so well with our 
current uh, study on the Feast of Tabernacles. So thank you, Ruth. That was really fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we all we all kind of feel that same way. It's uh, <laughs> Chuck, yes. Yeah, you know, as you know, Judy's in Cedar Village, which was a Jewish um, place and still is, but it's a lot of uh, Gentiles are in there now. But uh, so there's Jewish literature around, and there's the one that big newspaper there, the Jewish conference on Purim. Purim, yeah. Which is to do with Esther and with, you know, her freeing with Haman and all that stuff. Right. <laughs> Interestingly, this is one that modern-day Jews, or I don't know how long they've been doing it, but this is the one where they encourage them to get drunk, drunk. I mean, none of the other festivals are being... During Purim, you mean? Yeah, during Purim, which is not a festival that's in the Bible. No. You know, so... It's a party time, right? Well, i got to share with you uh, a story I heard this morning on the radio. Um, there was this uh, mother whose son was starting to go to, like, first grade, and, um, uh, he, you know, he was going to walk to school. And so the mother was uh, nervous about that. And so... Uh, she really wanted to make sure he got to school safely, but she didn't want to embarrass him by walking with him. He didn't want her to do that because, you know, that he was old enough to do it himself. You know how those young kids can be. So uh, she called a neighbor of hers and she, who lived on the way, and she said, would you mind, like, just following him, do me a favor, and, and you know, they were friends, and just make sure he gets there. And she goes, uh, no, that's fine. She goes, um, I... I, it, I'm up early anyway, and uh, my dog needs exercise, so I'll just do that, and we'll uh, we'll get the benefit of the exercise, and I'll make sure he gets there. So they did that, uh, and, and the little boy was walking to school with a little f- girlfriend of his that they met on the way, and they walked in, and every day uh, the woman walked behind them with their dog, make sure they got there. So about the you know fourth day or fifth day of it. Um, the uh, little girl looked at the boy and said, have you noticed that that woman is walking behind us like every single day and her dog uh, to school? And he said, yeah, he said, but that's okay. He said, that's Shirley Goodness and her dog Marcy. (laughs) And she goes, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, my mom reads to me every night the 23rd Psalm. And she says, Shirley Goodness and Marcy shall follow me all the days of my life. <laughs> so from the mouths, from the you know lips of mouths of babes, as it were. So, all right, let's open with prayer today. Uh, Grady, would you do us the great honor since your first day back? I know you're. you're I know I did this last week to. Uh, 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 who was it that did it last week? Um, uh, yeah, Stan. 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 Stan, I did. Stan and Bev, and I, they were back in the first week, and I put Stan on the spot. So today you get to be on the spot. So. <laughs> oh, precious Heavenly Father, we just so love and adore you. My goodness gracious, you have watched over us from the time we were babies, and uh, you will watch over us until the time that we leave this earth. But we just Amen. ask you, dear Father, that you would 
be with us this day, bless us this day. We ask that you would um, guide Greg uh, as he as he uh, gives a lesson today. We Amen. would ask also that you would be in the service today, and any new people that would come would be welcomed. We pray, do pray for our church, but we pray most of all right now for this class and for everyone in this class for their well-being. And um, there's so much beyond this that we need to pray, but we don't have the time right now. Maybe after class we can pray some more. I would like personally to thank every single person in this class, dear Lord, for the goodness of their hearts that they reached out to me in a time of need. <laughs> Heaven only knows. Uh, we need, all need to learn lessons from that, that there are people that uh, would just appreciate a little help. So thank you, Lord, and just bless us mightily in every way you possibly can today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah. So last week we did uh, like the opening scene I said of like a movie or a television show where we kind of wet your appetite with something and then we go back to fill in in a flashback kind of what led up to uh, that uh, scene. And so we talked last week about Psalm 118 as we just mentioned, verse 25 and 26, uh, the Hosanna verse. And uh, so now we're going to kind of fill in the backstory of how we how we got there. So we're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the seventh and last of the uh, feasts of the Lord, which God gave to His people in Leviticus uh, chapter 23, and um, it is number seven. There are seven, and this is the seventh one. It happens uh, during the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, which is known as Tishri. Um, and it goes from the 15th of Tishri to the 21st. So you have, um, first you have Rosh Hashanah, which is the Feast of Trumpets, which is on the 1st of Tishri. And then 10 days later, you have Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And then five days after that, you have uh, Tabernacles. Uh, and they all are in that seventh month of the Jewish calendar. And uh, on our calendar today, um, Tabernacles would be the end of September, uh, beginning of October time frame. It is, so it is uh, what they call a fall feast. Um, and it's interesting because uh, it is, as I said, the most joyous and festive of all of the uh, appointed times that God gave his people. Um, it's kind of uh, there, it would be similar to what we would have as our Thanksgiving. This is kind of their Thanksgiving festival uh, that they celebrate. And uh, interestingly, Tabernacles is mentioned more often in the Bible than any of the other feasts. So you would think, oh, well, Passover would be the one that's most often mentioned, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, perhaps. But no, it's actually the Feast of Tabernacles that is most referred to in Scripture. And as a matter of fact, um, although the common thought is that Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples was a Passover meal, uh, and so we see him celebrating Passover there in that scene, um, but in, uh, in the New Testament, in John chapter 7 especially, we see Jesus actually participating in the Feast of Tabernacles 
specifically it says that he was he was participating in in tabernacles in John chapter seven. So uh, it's and it's also one of the big three, uh, as we would call them, the big three feasts where people were told to come to Jerusalem and to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to observe these big three, which were Passover slash unleavened bread, that kind of mashes two together. Uh, because one right after another, you have Passover, the next day you start unleavened bread, that generally people would come to Jerusalem for that whole week uh, of those together. And the second one is the uh, Feast of Weeks, or we would call it Pentecost. Uh, and then the third one is the Feast of Tabernacles, when people were uh, told by God that you need to come to Jerusalem to uh, observe uh, these three uh, appointed times. So what is it? Let's look in our Bibles now to Leviticus 23, which is basically the source for all of seven of these. And it's here where uh, God gives to Moses what this is supposed to be about. Chapter, Ver, uh, chapter 23 of Leviticus, and it's uh, verse, we're going to start at verse 33. 2333. And remember, uh, my my language might be a little bit different, Tree of Life Bible from the Messianic Jewish perspective. So verse 33. Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Benai Israel, and say, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month is the feast of Sukkot. Sukkot is translated as tabernacles. You know, or it could mean a tent or a hut, or a booth. Sometimes it's translated as a booth. So the Feast of Sukkot, uh, for seven days to Adonai. On the first day, there is to be a holy convocation. You are to do no laborious work. For seven days, you are to bring an offering by fire to Adonai. The eighth day, and that's interesting, this is really the only of these feasts where you go an eighth day. Uh, you know, unleavened bread is seven days. Uh, and there is no eighth day after that, although if you put Passover in there, there is actually eight days, to all those to, those both together. But this is saying that after the seven days, then there's a, on the eighth day, the following day, there will be another holy convocation to you, uh, or a Sabbath rest, and you are to bring an offering by fire to Adonai. It is a solemn assembly. You should do no laborious work. That's why it's called a Sabbath rest, because you can't do work on that day. These are the Moedim of Adonai. Moedim means appointed times. These are the appointed times of Adonai, which you are to proclaim to the to be holy convocations, to present an offering by fire to Adonai, a burnt offering, a grain offering, a sacrifice, and drink offerings, each on its own day, besides those of the Shabbat of Adonai, and besides your gifts, all your vows, and all your free will offerings, which you give to Adonai. In other words, you aren't supposed to suspend your normal offerings and so forth, during these festivals. This was an addition to so uh, what you normally do. Verse 39. So on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruits of the land. So uh, Sukkot or Tabernacles is a harvest festival. Uh, we talked about how in, uh, you know, in the Feast of Weeks, you're talking about the first fruits of the uh, the wheat harvest, and uh, you're talking about in first fruits in the spring, bringing in the first fruits of the barley harvest. Well, now in tabernacles, you're talking about 
the end of the growing season, the fall harvest, where you're harvesting all of your crops and so forth and bringing those in. So this is a celebration of the harvest at the end of the growing season. So on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in, the, and the, the idea there is the in gathering, and that's something we're going to talk about later on, uh, gathered in the fruits of the land, you are to keep the Feast of Adonai for seven days. The first day is to be a Shabbat rest, and the eighth day will also be a Shabbat rest. On the first day, you are to take choice fruit of trees. And even today, um, when they make their tabernacles, uh, and they have those as part of what they build to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, they will bring in fruits, all different fruits. Uh, and they'll use those for decorations. They'll also use those at, to, as part of their meals and so forth. So uh, it, it's a lot of it is uh, it, they have they concentrate a lot on the on the fruit, the different fruits that uh, they bring in and use as part of. It. So take choice fruit of the trees. That's still part of it today. Branches of palm trees, and there again, when they build, even today, when they build their their booths, their temporary uh, tents or tabernacles at their homes, they will use palm branches as part of the, the structure and construction of those booths. And they will, they will use those palm branches to create a semi-roof. And I don't want it to make it thing. It's not like a thatched roof that you would find. It's not meant to keep out the rain or the sun or the sky. It's actually the reverse of that. The intention is to just have a little bit of a covering, but you're supposed to be able to see the sky. So you can look up to heaven and see God and see the stars and see his creation. That's part of it. So you, so the, the way they do that is it's not meant to be a roof per se. It's just meant to be a little bit of a covering, but they can still see the sky. So uh, you are to take choice fruits of trees, branches of palm trees, boughs, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, um, willow tree branches, and rejoice before Adonai your God for seven days. Rejoice before Adonai. So God tells them, be happy. <laughs> be joyful. Um, you are to celebrate it as a festival to Adonai for seven days. And today uh, they call it either Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, uh, meaning tabernacles, or they just sometimes call it the festival. And again, it goes to this, it's the festival. Well, they know when someone says the festival that they're talking about tabernacles. Uh, you are celebrated as a festival to Adonai for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it in the seventh month. When he says there is a statute forever, he means forever. And we're going to talk about, uh, probably not this week, maybe, they, oh, I don't know. We're, we're going to take our time through Tabernacles because there's a lot here. And I know it's Ruth's favorite one. So we're going to do it justice and take our time to go through it. But... Um, <laughs> There is, and we'll read it later in Zechariah, a passage that talks about Sukkot being observed during the millennial kingdom of Christ, which happens after his second coming, a thousand-year kingdom. So when he says forever here, he's talking about forever. I think we will, throughout eternity, some way, somehow celebrate tabernacles with God. It's a joyous celebration 
And so why not? We're going to be happy in heaven, right? So why not celebrate the feast that is all about joy? And and, and it says here, it'll be forever, and so why not? So anyway, uh, verse 42, you are to live in Sukkot for seven days. All the native born in Israel are to live in Sukkot. So uh, so that your generations may know that I had Benai Israel to dwell in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Adonai, your God. So part of tabernacles is building your hut, building your booth. Now, if it was me, okay, I would say, okay, here's what we're going to do, family. We're going to go into the family room. And we're going to move the furniture around, and we're going to get some blankets, and we're going to put on top of that, and that's going to be our tent, you know, because it's warmer in the house, and it's drier, and it's easier, you know. But that is not, obviously, it's supposed to be a temporary dwelling that you put up outside of your home. Uh, All the synagogues will have one outside of the synagogue. Uh, and um, these things really, it, it just depends on, you know, how good you are, how much you want to make it, you know, you make it what you want it to be. I'm sure that, you know, the tabernacle that Mike Hirschberg will put up would be much better than the hut I would put up, okay? <laughs> but, uh, and, and uh, interestingly, um, my company's... Uh, office is over near Amberley Village and that as you know is a big Jewish population there and I for years you know I would drive back and forth from Anderson Township through you know I, I like the back roads and so I go through all the neighborhoods and sure enough in the fall September October I'd see all these structures going up outside of these Only homes. Only over on the far, far side of Amberley where the Orthodox Jewish live. I yeah. lived in that neighborhood okay. and I saw the not, not everyone, not but, but there are but there are you know, you see these structures and some of them look like they could fall down any moment, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but the point is that uh, they build these and it just depends on how you want to do it. Uh, most Observer, observers of this uh, are happy just to eat their meals there, to go out into their tabernacle that they built and have their meals. And they feel that is fulfilling what God has called them to do. Other families might take it more seriously and actually live out there and sleep out there uh, during that week, weekly period. And here in our area, I'm sure it depends a lot on what the weather's going to be like, you know, and that kind of thing. But they do build them and they do use them. And uh, certainly that's what they were supposed to do here. Okay, so that is that. But now let's Greg, look. Yes, Chuck. On. Yeah. That, that one thing really caught my eye there. They lived in the temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. And, you know, as I read through the scriptures, I see these references all the time to something like this or to the six days the Lord made everything in the earth, the heaven, the earth, and all that is therein. Or Jesus referring to Adam and Eve, or referring to Noah, or referring to uh, Jonah. All the things that the critics and all say, you know, they, they say, oh, that's not true, that's just a story. God made sure that all the way through the Bible they keep referring to these things, and they don't refer to them as stories or fairy tales. They refer to them as real events, real people, 
real occurrences. Exactly. Exactly. I was just thinking the other day, you know, you could study the Bible as a history book. I mean, even if you aren't saved or you're not Jewish and you just want to make an intellectual, you could intellectually look at the Bible and study it as history uh, because there's so much history here. But when you're a believer, you see it much more than that, but it's history that changes your life, you know, that kind of thing. So that is interesting. So uh, now let's turn over to Numbers because Numbers gets into exactly what all the sacrificial system was about for Sukkot. So Numbers uh, 29 is where we're going to go. Numbers chapter 29. And we're going to go to verse 12. Okay, so Numbers 29, 12. On the 15th day of the seventh month, you are to have a sacred assembly. You are not to do any of your work, and you are to celebrate the feast to Adonai for seven days. You you are to offer a burnt offering by fire to Adonai as a pleasing aroma. Now this is the first day. Thirteen young bulls from the herd, two rams, and fourteen-year-old male lambs without defect. Their grain offerings, a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah with each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths with each of the two rams, and one-tenth with each of the fourteen lambs, plus one male goat as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering with its grain and drink offering. So that's day one. Verse 17, on the second day, you'd offer twelve young bulls from the herd, two rams. Four, so everything is the same except you, all, you offer one less bull. You go from 13 bulls on day one to 12 bulls on day two. Verse 20, on the third day, offer 11 bulls, two rams. So you take another one less bull. Everything else is the same. Verse 23, on the fourth day, 10 bulls, two rams, and so forth. Verse 26, on the fifth day, nine bulls, two rams, and so forth. Verse 29, on the sixth day, eight bulls, two rams, so on and so forth. Verse 32, on the seventh day, seven bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, and so on and so forth. Then in verse 35, on the eighth day, there shall be uh, for you an assembly. You are to do no regular work. You are to offer Adonai a burnt offering, a fire offering, a pleasing aroma, one, now on back down to one bull, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without defect, and their grain and drink offerings with the bull, ram, and lamb corresponding to their number according to the regulations, and the goat for a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, and it's this grain offering and drink offerings. Uh, you are to prepare these for Adonai at your Moedim, your appointed times, in addition to your vow and free will offerings, in other words, in addition to everything else you normally do, along with your normal burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, fellowship offerings, so Moses told Benai Israel all that Adonai commanded Moses. So there's a lot of sacrificing going on, isn't there? There's a lot going on here. <laughs> yeah, the accommodations were made. So this is like if you can do this. Uh, if you can't do this, then you can substitute. As we see, there were su- there were accommodations made. You could bring turtle doves or you know p- pigeons or so on and so forth. So it wasn't meant to be a hardship. Well, was everyone on, supposed to sacrifice? If you could, the group it, to no, each person. If you if you could, yeah. What happened to these four animals? Were they just burned up? Yeah, they're burnt offerings. Yeah, they're burnt offerings. So, so. Uh, 
So the meat went to the priest. The priest would use well, it. Yeah, so yeah. That's what I mean. So the meat was say was used. Okay, it wasn't just. So there were two parts. So there were so there were so there basically were two parts of Sukkot. The first part was the tabernacles part, and basically what that was meant to do is to remind the Jewish people how God took care of them in their wilderness wanderings. So they lived in temporary booths. They lived in temporary tents as they spent the 40 years after they left Egypt, before they went to the promised land, these 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, that they lived in tents. And so this is a reminder for people who now have, in, have inherited that, uh, have that ancestry, to remind them of what God did what their what their ancestors did and what God did for them. What what did God do for them? Well, there's not a lot growing in the wilderness. You can't plot, plant crops there, for example. You can't really live there. You have to be nomadic, nomadic to go through there. But in spite of the fact that it was a hostile, desolate, deserted kind of place, God met their needs. He still took care of them. There was no food, he gave them manna. When there was no water, he gave them water from a rock. When they wanted something more, he gave them the pheasants, whether they wanted them or not. Uh, and, and he gave them enough uh, raw material in the desert place to build their tents. They weren't extravagant, but it was enough. And so part of the celebration, part of the joyous part of this, is to celebrate that God takes care of his people. He took care of them in their wilderness uh, uh, wanderings. But also it's what, we, what they call the feast of the end gathering as well, because they're bringing in this harvest. They're bringing in the end of the, of the growing season. This is their Thanksgiving time. And they have the end gathering of their uh, harvest into the storehouse. And so the idea there is once again, God meeting their needs. He met their needs in the wilderness those 40 years after he left Egypt, and he's also meeting their needs today by giving them the crops, then the, uh, the, the fruit of the vine, as it were, and these things that meet their needs today. So the Feast of Tabernacles was a reminder of what God did for them and what they went through in the wilderness when they left Egypt on the way to the Promised Land. But it was more so a joyous celebration that God took care of his people then and God is still taking care of his people now. And so that is kind of the, two, uh, the two-prong idea of what the Feast of Tabernacles is about for the Jewish people. You know what this kind of uh, is, though? It's kind of the seed, the beginning of the corruption of the priests, because they're getting rich, 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 and all the <laughs> stuff that's being given to them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, in those days, probably not so much, but then when you move forward, just a few hundred years. It's well, we, I think we talked about it before. It's like, you know, when you, it says they're a lamb without defect, okay? So, you couldn't just bring a lamb. Yeah. You had to have your lamb inspected by the priests, okay? <clears throat> and so the priests happened to also be selling. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, it's kind of like uh, when you go to buy a car, you can buy the pre-certified, it's a used car, right? You can have the regular, just normal used car, mm -hmm. or you can have the pre-certified used car <laughs> that we've checked out for you, you know? It costs more, but, it, yeah, it costs more, but we've checked it out for you. Well, the, that's kind of the same way it was back then. It's like, 
first of all, the land you brought always had a defect. Okay? But we happen to have some pre-certified lands back here, okay? That you can buy from us. And so what happens is people just stop bringing their own lands. It was like, why bother, That's you know? Right, exactly. Exactly. Exactly right. So so yeah, you're right. This is yeah, it's it's fraught for priests who if they don't you know, depending on what their heart is, and that's why Jesus did what he did, because they were just out for the money in so many cases. So, Now, one of the things that happened with tabernacles is, over the years, it became really associated with rain and water, as it were, um, because uh, Jerusalem receives virtually all of its rain uh, for the whole year from November to March. Um, and so you have the you have the end gathering of the crops, the harvest at the beginning of October, and it's just before the rainy season starts in November. And so it being an agricultural society that relied on growing uh, crops, uh, it was a, a little time of nervousness because you need that rain, you need that water to come. And uh, it's only going to come from November to March. And so you're coming into tabernacles, which is a time of celebration and joy for what God has given, but you're also praying for God to give you the rain and the water that you're going to need for next year's crops, okay? Because if you don't get it, March, November through March, you're not getting it. So uh, it's interesting, I did some research, and Jerusalem actually receives almost as much rain on an annual basis as London, England. Now, you think London, England is a wet place. You always think it's rainy there, it's, it's foggy there, it's cloudy there. Well, on an annual basis, London gets 23 inches of rain. On an annual basis, Jerusalem gets 22 inches of rain. There's only one inch difference. But from June through August, June, July, and August, Jerusalem, their average rainfall, June, July, and August, their average rainfall is zero. They don't get any to speak of. So tabernacles is a time when people in Israel, especially in those days when they needed that rain, that they would pray for God to give them the rain for the rainy seasons coming up so they could plant their crops and be successful in the growing season. They needed that rain. They needed that water to uh, make it work. So in Jesus' day, the Feast of Tabernacles was about several different things. One was the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So you were expected to make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem for that one of the big three uh, feasts. But they and you would you generally would come in groups uh, together if you were coming, and it was a joyous time. You're coming to celebrate. It was a time of a happy time, and so your your travel there to Jerusalem would be it's, it's a happy good thing. It's a it's a thing you look forward to. Uh, the other thing is the building of your booth. So when you got to Jerusalem, you had to build your booth. Uh, you couldn't just go and say, yeah, I don't think I'll do that. You know, it was going to going to Jerusalem, but also when you got there, you had to, to build your booth. So uh, people would bring their materials, or they would get them when they got there. And so they would generally have to spread out in the fields around Jerusalem and on the hills. But the problem is that they could 
only build their tent within a Sabbath day's journey to the temple because you couldn't work, right, on the first day. You couldn't work on the eighth day. And walking more than, basically it's half a mile. Walking more than a half a mile was work. So you had to get your booth built uh, out in the field or on the hill, but within a half a mile of Jerusalem so you could get to the temple without walking farther than that. So a lot of people were in Jerusalem during Tabernacles. A lot of people were living outside. Uh, a lot of people were, you know, at night you see all these campfires, right? Because everybody's living outside and you have campfires going. So this is uh, all part of Tabernacles. Um, Tabernacles officially started with a shofar blast that was sounded from the walls of the temple. And uh, this was, so you people would come, they build, they make their pilgrimage, they get to Jerusalem, they build their uh, tabernacles outside, and they would get ready to go, and they would wait, and when they heard that shofar sound from the walls, they knew tabernacles had started, and uh, and they could start planning their, you know, their observances each day, because it was, as I said, seven days, eight days, and they would start the, start all the services. There are several several different things they would do during the uh, synagogue service, and um, we'll get into the details of them in a minute. I want to show this video real quick. Two things that was integral for the Feast of Tabernacles was a water ceremony where the high priest would go to the Pool of Siloam and get a pitcher of water and bring it back to the temple. We'll talk about that more in detail. Uh, and he would bring it, he would pour it in a basin at the altar. And uh, part of that is they would, the priest would sing as they go around the altar, sing verse 25 of Psalm, one, of Psalm 118, uh, while people wave their palm branches. So that, would, that was a big part of it. And then there was a, a light ceremony where they had these four huge menorahs that would light up uh, miles around, basically. They were so big and so bright. So part of the ceremony on some of the days was the water ceremony, the light ceremony. So uh, Zola talks about that here. I thought we'd play that real quick, and then uh, next week we will um, get more into detail on it. So Mike, do you? Can I ask you? Oh, oh my gosh, she has a remote. It's remote. Cool for you. Well, go tables. ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's not very I I just wanted to ask, how do you think that the waving of the palms got transferred? into Palm Sunday, I mean the Sunday when Jesus came in. Because they would sing that Psalm, that verse 25 oh, right. as part of Tabernacles, uh, and waving the so palm branch was part of they, that. They were doing so when they saw him coming in, they say, oh, well, he's, this is this is the Messiah. Uh -huh. All throughout Tabernacles, we've done the, palm, the waving of the palms yeah, to recognize, okay. you know, that when he who comes in the name of the Lord, yeah. and so this was part of them saying in a physical way, yes, we... He is, that's him. Ruth? They always presented the lamb. That was when you sacrifice before they would send the sacrifice. Yes. Yeah, and they would pull their lamb four days before they would sacrifice it to... 
observe it, make sure there's no defect, and to kind of get to know it. Because when you get to know your lamb, it's more difficult to sacrifice it, right? It's, it's more meaningful to you. And Jesus comes in as the lamb four days beforehand when people can observe him and get to know him. and, and so, so, okay, so let's go ahead and watch this real quick. The, the grand feast of tabernacles is that thousand years, uh, living in his tabernacle, in effect. Well, the, uh, the Israelites dwell in these Sukkot, these booths, these, these ten, seven days. They teach their children the story of how they were sustained in the wilderness. Some just take meals, some stay overnight. But God says all that are Israelites born will dwell in booths. And uh, there's a wonderful celebration uh, there was at the temple, there is at the synagogues today, uh, a pouring of water for one thing. Uh, this is uh, about uh, uh, the high priest taking water from the pool of Siloam, which is uh, down the southern end of the uh, hill of, uh, below the temple, and uh, gathering water from there and pouring a basin at the foot of the altar in a grand ceremony. Josephus, a first century historian, said, if you haven't seen this celebration, you've never seen a festival celebration. It was so grand. Uh, they encircled the altar seven times. Uh, they, they beat with willow branches. The lighting of the temple was four gigantic uh, candelabras, uh, uh, four huge uh, lights uh, with so, so much uh, uh, flame coming out of them that it said every courtyard throughout Jerusalem was lit through the night uh, by those candelabra. <clears throat> Uh, the Lord covers it in the Psalms and says it's about the pillar of fire that was uh, out there in the wilderness. That is what they are remembering. The pouring of water remembers Moses striking the rock and God providing water for his people. And so a grand celebration to mark this happiest feast. We might call it kind of their festival of Thanksgiving. So there's the symbolism of the lighting ceremony being... Uh, the light ceremony being uh, reminiscent, reminding them of the pillar of fire that led them in the wilderness and the water being the water from the rock. So we're going to talk about how Jesus totally reinterpreted that. So we'll do that next week. So we're, this is the second week of um, Lent. And even though we're not doing a special series in Lent, uh, whether you like it or not, I'm reading essays that have to do with Lent, um, and the theme of these Lenten essays are Faces at the Cross. And last week, the face at the cross we talked about was Mary Magdalene. Uh, this week, the face of the cross is a religious leader. So this is one of the religious leaders who was at the cross. It says, as soon as the trial started, I knew we had him. Finally, after the three-year cat-and-mouse game we had been playing with him, and with the hearts and minds of our people at stake, we had him. Our guards had grabbed Jesus in the middle of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane with the help of the only apostle who had come to his senses, Judas Iscariot. The 30 pieces of silver we paid him proved well worth it. Now we had him. As one of the temple elders, my first responsibility was to rouse the members of the Sanhedrin so they could hurry to the judgment seat as quickly as possible. Within the hour, all were present and seated around a solita the solitary figure who looked so much less imposing now than he did when he was out in the backwoods of Galilee preaching and teaching, and yes, healing. At the conclusion of roll call, our high priest Caiaphas started his interrogation. It was clear from the beginning what Caiaphas, Caiaphas intended. 
His argument was plotted out to render only one conclusion, one final verdict, death. Now we had him. Caiaphas called one witness after another, all of whom told a convincing story about something that Jesus had done or said which would be worthy of his execution. The only problem was that no two witnesses told the same story, a requirement of our law. Just when I was beginning to doubt the final outcome of our proceeding, two men came forward with the same testimony. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now we had him. The high priest leaped to his feet and confronted Jesus, shouting at the top of his voice, even though his face was only inches from the face of Jesus. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Immediately, the room fell deathly silent. The tension in the air was suffocating. Only a few seconds passed, but it seemed like the time between today and tomorrow, until Jesus calmly replied, Yes, it is as you say. Caiaphas tore his priestly robe and accused our prisoner of blasphemy, a crime worthy of death according to our religious laws. Then Caiaphas turned to us, pointing his accusing finger in our direction, and asked, What do you think? What could we say? Our high priest had heard it. We had all heard it. Even the small crowd gathered around a campfire outside of our meeting area had heard it. What other verdict could we render? He is worthy of death, we answered in unison. Now we had him. But to put him to death was not something we could do ourselves, not since the day the Romans had conquered our nation and ruled in our city. To put Jesus to death would require the help of the Roman authority in Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate. We would need to convince him that Jesus should be crucified, Rome's favorite method of capital punishment. Before he was dragged over to Pilate's court, many of our members rushed down and struck Jesus with their fists or slapped him, and some even spit on him. I was relieved to see Jesus dragged out, afraid that one of our own people might kill him by accident. Now we had him. What happened next, I'm not even sure. I tried to stay away from the crowds that began to fill the streets and gather as close as possible to Pilate's praetorium. The larger the mob became, the louder they became. It was clear uh, I was not going to find any peace in the city that day, so I decided to walk away from town to go to the outskirts where I thought things would quiet down. But in my weariness from the long night and the demands of the morning, I found myself on the wrong side of the drama that was playing out. I had wandered too far, near the place where the Romans crucified their criminals. It was called Gogotha, or the place of the skull, because the features of the hill there resembled a skull. I had only a moment before I looked up and realized where I was when I heard a rumble not far away coming closer. Looking down the road, I could see the Roman soldiers clearing a path in the midst of a pile of people unintentionally blocking their way. Some of those people were crying and screaming in great distress. Some were shouting obscenities and mocking with crude gestures. Some were just quietly stumbling along, trying to keep up, while at the same time trying to keep their distance. I was frozen in place. I tried to walk farther away, but my legs would not move. It was as if my feet were rooted to the ground. Eventually, the scene passed by me. In the center of it all, I saw him. He was hard to recognize at first. My God, what had Pilate and his soldiers done to this man? Could this be the same Jesus who had been sentenced by our Sanhedrin only a few hours before? He was covered with blood. He wore a crown of thorns around his head. The flesh on his back and shoulders had been ripped away by violent flogging. He was weak so weak that his cross was being carried by another man whom I did not recognize. Now we had him. 
It was as though I had come out of a trance. Suddenly I realized that I must follow too. I needed to see how this saga would end since I had been there at the beginning. When the soldiers arrived at the appointed place, they did what they had been trained to do. Within minutes, they had Jesus nailed to the cross and lifted up between two thieves who were also crucified that day, one on either side of him. It was then that I noticed the sign nailed above his head on the cross. It read, This is the King of the Jews. Strange, I thought, that our leaders would allow such a statement, especially since, because of the way it was written, it was posed as a matter of fact. But now we had him. Several members of the Sanhedrin, including some of our chief priests and teachers of the law, found their way just beneath his cross. I snaked my way through the onlookers to the place where they were standing. After a few hours, one or two of them began shouting at Jesus, challenging him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Caught up in the moment, I even added the the cacophony myself, calling out as loudly as I could, he trusts in God, let God rescue him. Now we had him. But after that, things happened which had no explanation. At noon, on a bright, sunny day, darkness suddenly covered the land. Not darkness due to a cloudy sky. It was as if the rays of the sun had just been extinguished. There was a terrible earthquake that shattered rocks. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And there was his voice, Jesus' voice. How to describe it? Gentle, confident, powerful, loving. The first thing I heard him say was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then he helped the one being crucified beside him when he whispered, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And then the last thing I heard him proclaim, yes, proclaim, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was then that I realized for the first time, I did not have him. He had me. Now I have him every day and will have him every day eternally. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you. Shalom.